0: I've known Cindy and Anna for a while and as we came together to sort of dream and think about what we felt like the Lord was doing amongst us um, to bring to you all, we settled on the theme of chaos. And when we did so, I felt like we were just right in line with everything going on in the world, that we live in turbulent times, challenging times. We live in times where the things that we've trusted in seem to not be trustworthy anymore. Or we've lived in times where people in our lives who we thought we could trust have not been trustworthy anymore. And some of the things that we were taught long ago, or even most recently, we've thought to ourselves, maybe that's not true. And what can I know? And what can I trust? We touched a little bit on this a few weeks ago with the unexpected Damascus Roads. But it's okay to feel a little bit turbulent right now like you're just on an airplane where there's some bumps in the road and you might need an air sickness bag occasionally or you're really hoping that the person next to you does not need one um, and if they do that they move further away from you as they do so we're all kind of a little bit stuck on the airplane together and trying to manage these times when as soon as we picked this several months ago and we started talking about how does how does God fit into the theme of chaos Um, Or is God only a God of order? And I think I heard that a lot um, in different settings over the last 20, 30 years of ministry. God's a God of order. And so that means there won't be any confusion or difficulty or being unsettled, right? Everything will be fine. And if you follow Jesus, everything will sort out. And if you do your quiet time right, everything will be okay for you. But of course, I lived for five more minutes after that and realized that none of that was true. And as soon as we sort of settled on this theme, um, I got from the St. Ignatian Solidarity Network, their theme for this Lent for the 40 days in preparation of Easter was finding God in the chaos. And I was like, hilarious. Like we had just had our conversation. And I was like, well, we're not the only ones swimming in this soup right now trying to make sense of a world that feels a little bit different than we had expected. When we open up the Bible and we we turn to the book of Genesis, we read that there's chaos right in the very first line. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void and empty, and the Spirit of God hovered over the surface. There was the deep and oh, I have to say it in Hebrew. Bereshit so bara Elohim et Elohim The darkness was over the surface of the tahom, the deep, the abyss, and the wind of God hovered over all of that over the surface of the waters. And that word tohu vavohu, we've translated as formless or void in a lot of our translations, but it can also just mean chaos. And even as I was looking it up, I saw tohu bohu, and I was like, well, that in and of itself is a chaotic um, transliteration of the Hebrew, but they've translated it chaos, disorder, or confusion. We actually don't really have good translation for it in English, nor does the Hebrew Bible seem to agree on it. It pops up again in Isaiah and in Jeremiah and other places, tohu vavohu, that at the beginning of creation, things are a bit this, but God is present in it. God is present hovering over it. Uh, when our daughter was in kindergarten, the teachers were trying to teach her this term, tohu vavohu, so they had all the kids go outside and they trashed the classroom. They turned over chairs and tables and all the things, and they had the kids come back inside, and they said, this is Tohu Vavohu, and now God is going to order it, and he's going to use you to do it, so clean up your classroom. So they all set the classroom back to order. Right now, after the For Goodness Snakes, our kids are going to have the chance to make this fun little snow globe, and it's not a snow globe, but it's a chaos globe, because As they glue the tree and they look at the garden and they see all the things that God has made they'll also note that there's a lot of chaos in the midst but even when it's shaken up even when things are kind of crazy you can still see color and beauty and light pouring through and God is in the midst of it all so they're gonna be learning they're gonna come back and preach to you next week they're gonna be learning how you can use this even as a prayer practice How do we settle ourselves when we start to find ourselves in places or in times or in thoughts or feelings of chaos? And how do we become aware of God's presence in that midst? So that's why Dr. Cindy Parker and Dr. Ana Beal are here. Let me introduce you to them. Dr. Anna Sigis Beal discovered her love of the Bible at a young age. Isn't that good? That's like lots of you, huh? Um, she was raised on the mission field in Papua New Guinea, and Dr. Sigis's parents instilled in her a deep love and respect for the scriptures as they worked with mission groups and indigenous peoples to translate the Bible into unwritten languages. If you've heard of Wycliffe Bible Translators, those are her folks. Dr. Anasigas Beal holds a PhD in biblical literature from Baylor University, specializing on the prophetic literature of the Book of the Twelve, and if you don't know what that is, she can tell you at dessert, um, the Minor Prophets, and she wrote her dissertation on the formation of Micah 1 through 3 um, from the 8th century to the exile. It's actually fascinating. You can just Google Dr. Anasigas Beal dissertation and you can read it. Um, She teaches all manner of Bible things at Gardner-Webb University, which is just east of Charlotte, North Carolina, and she enjoys engaging with students on biblical interpretation, curiosities that arise when reading and studying. And you can catch her work in short videos, blogs, and episodes on the Bible for Normal People podcast. She's really glad she doesn't live in Montana, because she's on TikTok, so you can go and do that. Um, She enjoys rom-coms, Mexican food, and not taking herself too seriously. She has two really cute kids and a wonderful husband, also doing his own PhD work and study. I met Anna in 2007 as we were studying together in Jerusalem at Jerusalem University College and it's been a a real treat to keep in touch these many years and I'm glad my friends in town. Next person I'd like to introduce you is Dr. Cindy Parker. I feel like she needs no introduction for some of you because she was part of our Spark community for several months as she lived here working on her dissertation. She holds a PhD in theological and religious studies from the University of Gloucestershire, having written her dissertation on Deuteronomy's Place, an analysis of palatial structure of Deuteronomy. She's the creator of Narrative Place and the host of Context Matters podcast, which you haven't listened to that yet. You should definitely hit the subscribe button and listen to all those good things. She has fantastic conversations with a lot of really interesting people. And she's the director of education and conversation at a church in Philadelphia called Resurrection. So if you're ever in Philly, go and check it out. At the core of many of her projects is a desire to help people learn to read the land of the Bible. Dr. Parker lived in Jerusalem for five years, traveled and taught around the world, curates diverse conversations, connections, and friendships that's me, Um, and leading tours in Israel and seeks to inspire students of all ages through experiential education. Her research interests include biblical views of place, biblical history and geography, and the correlation between theology and ecology. And I have to say, if you hang out with Cindy for about five minutes, you're going to find really, really good, fantastic vegetarian food, somebody who's caring for the land, somebody who's doing something creative, um, you know, farm to table, which was that's like, by the way, not something we should have to pay extra for. That's what Jesus did, farm to table. That was just like super normal. It shouldn't be a posh thing. It should just be the normal things. Um, and Cindy has looked at all those things. I've had the privilege of walking the land of the U.K. with Cindy as well as the land of Israel with Cindy. We got lost. We crashed a rental car. We were really hot and sweaty. We didn't want to talk to each other anymore on the hike. We found really good food, um, and we've been able to have a lot of fun all around. And so I'm grateful for my friends that are here. And it feels like an immense privilege to be able to introduce you, my friends, to these, my friends, and have us wrestle and study together. So, doctors, please come and
1: be here. Wow, thank you. What a warm welcome. It is so good to be here with you all. We have just a little bit of something weird to talk about
2: well we thought it's chaos
1: yeah so why not so
2: we'll bring extra chaos a
1: little extra into the
2: room Um, but just because there are more people here today um, than there were last night and we're actually building on what we already did we thought we would do just a little miniature um, summary of what we did so Deuteronomy is my jam Deuteronomy is the best book of the Bible and I am Convinced I need to brainstorm everyone can I'm gonna stand because I can't quite see everyone in the back Um, So we talked about uh, the way that chaos shows up in the book of Deuteronomy and Deuteronomy is chasing Eden There's something about the way that the book is written that it is always borrowing from Genesis 1 and 2 and it's trying to cast vision for an Edenic like place where God's people can go and live. And so we looked at how Deuteronomy is structuring that. And part of what it does in this call for God's people to live in such a way that they participate in the shaping of God's kingdom in reality requires a self-edit of your own consumption And your own desires fulfilling your own desires and so we talked about how that can be really chaotic but deuteronomy is in the business of opening the table of god to all people and in order for that to happen people have to limit their consumption and their desires so most of deuteronomy is focusing on the land of israel that we see here with all of its diversity even just in a google map You can see the green and the brown and how the north is very different than the south.
1: Um, But we didn't stay there. no we did not we we moved we moved on over to Mesopotamia and there we found you know the people of God are centered on Jerusalem right they know how to worship God they know where to go they have read Deuteronomy and they know what that's all about but if you go off script a little bit and you head over to Mesopotamia you're going to find yourself in the center of Assyria and the Assyrians are jerks and they are mean and they have colonized Israel and they are violent awful people And so what was so interesting about the chaos that we looked into last night was that God was found in this unlikely place, in Mesopotamia, in Nineveh, the capital of this evil empire, where the people there, even even these evil, awful people, turned to God and were included in God's family, the least likely candidates. Um, So that's a bit of what we did last night
2: and as we move forward to tonight we're thinking we're building on these ideas of uh, deuteronomy's contrast between the kingdom of god and these human empires and how different those things are and we're just going to fast forward and we're going to bring jesus in jesus as the one who really just fully ushers in and is an example of the kingdom of god and teaches us to pray. May your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we're in that time period. So what does that mean? The thing is, we've changed our context. We're moving out of this Fertile Crescent area. We're going all the way into the Roman Empire, just with its gigantic, vast territories that it has claimed and everything that Rome stands for. And we're actually going to fast forward and look at only a portion of the Roman Empire. But we're keeping in mind that our context has changed. The time period has changed. The cultural context has changed. Everything is different. And in this portion of the world, we're actually going to look at a couple different cities. And this is actually really interesting because early Christianity was almost an urban affair. You know, it leaves Jerusalem, and it scatters, and it goes, and it is spreading Now tonight. We're talking about the cities that are in the Roman Empire, but Christianity spread east through the Syrian Empire. It spread south through sub-Saharan Africa. So Christianity is going everywhere. But in the context we're talking about just for tonight, it's in the Roman Empire, and it's located in these urban hubs. And so within this urban hub, we're going to take a look at a letter that is then sent, that is going to then connect all these different churches and all of these different urban areas. And so you might be guessing already what book we brought to you to talk about. You know, Don't leave the room. Um, So we're going to look at the book. It's not going to be that bad. It won't be bad. No. Um, We will bring in a dragon, though. Heck
1: yes, we will bring in a dragon. I don't think we We can really do
2: chaos without doing a dragon. Yeah. Yeah. So this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which is this vision of this revealed risen Lord that is going to be written down and sent out to all of these churches in this Roman urban context. And so just because I know you are sparkers, and so you're probably accustomed to this, when we're looking at any book in the bible we need to first well not first one of the first conversations or questions we need to have is what kind of genre is this because the genre is what tells you what we're going like what do we do with the text in front of us and so there's no clear-cut singular genre that works for revelation It's an uh, amalgamation Mm -hmm. Uh, of lots of different things. So primarily, it's a letter. It's a vision that is written down, and it is sent out to be distributed among real worshiping communities. It is because it's a letter, it's addressing very specific uh, cultural context, real urban context for each of these communities also very important is the idea that this is apocalyptic literature which means it's just weird it's weird to us but it's a type of literature that was not weird to them so apocalypse is it's a revelation a vision or a disclosure of some sort it's usually written within this narrative framework it's just that it relies so heavily on images that if you're not familiar with the images and the pictures of the Hebrew Bible, much less with the images that are scattered throughout all of the Roman Empire, you don't quite get apocalyptic literature. Because all of the pictures are very specifically bringing up, it's like a picture that holds a huge bucket of contextual data to it. Apocalyptic literature in this kind of a book like Revelation is also talking about the difference between the earthly realm that we see and the super reality of the heavenly realm. Oh, I like that. Yeah, it's a super reality, not not like a fantasy story, right? But this is the ultimate of what's happening. And it's the ultimate of what's happening that gives you hope in the here and now. And so we're going to be in the chaotic times where on earth is the hope. And so the last thing that I'll say about uh, genre is this is prophetic text, and it is doing what your guys do. Oh, yeah. Right? The minor prophets and, well, the major prophets, all the Hebrew prophets. All of them. They're all like holding a mirror up to the face of God's people and saying, this is reality but then casting vision for the way that reality really can be the potential of what is to come.
1: The world as it could be is not the world as it is. And so what the Old Testament prophets are doing again and again and what Revelation is doing again and again is trying to help you see as God sees and not as humanity sees, that reality that could be. So in the first chapter of Revelation,
2: I mean, if you haven't read Revelation in a while, I know those of you who are in Garden to Garden are probably coming up to Revelation, have no fear, although it is somewhat puzzling. (laughs) But in the first chapter, there's this great vision and encounter that the writer of Revelation, John, is seeing and then he says this i turned to see the voice that was speaking with me and having turned i saw seven golden lampstands and in the middle of the lampstands i saw one like the son of man and when you read through the rest of this dynamic description of the son of man you realize this is the risen lord this is the risen christ and one of the things that i think is so stinking beautiful about just this opening part of revelation is Jesus is found in the midst of all of his churches. And so I, I interviewed a, a lot of pastors Daniel was one of them about in the COVID era, post-COVID era, why do we go to church? And one of the pastors said, "If you want to meet Jesus, you go to church because he's standing in the middle of his churches." which is a beautiful image for me. And then right after this description of this risen Lord, there's a little bit of an explanation for a couple of the images that we see in chapter one, where it says, as for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And I love this because we see Jesus, not only in the midst of his people, in the midst of the churches, But he has the ability to send out messengers and to communicate and to talk to these churches. And then chapters 2 and 3 are going to be direct address to each of the particularities of these churches, calling them to shift their focus to make sure that Jesus, the risen Lord, remains in the center of their communities.
1: But that's not all after after this amazing vision of Jesus in the midst of all of the churches then our our apocalypter I don't know if that's what you would call it but the guy John he gets called right on up to heaven because why not Um, so he enters heaven and again keep in mind that whole idea of uh, prophetic literature is all about seeing as God sees well John is going to get a dose of that because he goes right up to heaven and gets to see that heavenly reality and, my friends, that heavenly reality is chaos. I mean, you've got a throne with a bunch of other thrones around it, and then these creatures with a bunch of wings, and all of the wings have eyes on them. Like, eyes and eyes and eyes. And in the midst of all of this chaos, though, we have this one focus, just like in the book of Deuteronomy. And the focus is on God. God. Everything is centered on that one that is enthroned and everyone there is saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. So that is our primary focus in heaven. That is your heavenly reality, this focus on God. And as we go through the book of Revelation... I want you to wipe away from your brain, if you have any of this, any notion of thinking of Revelation as a blueprint for the end times. Instead, what we have is is that Revelation isn't meant to be read as this blueprint. Instead, it's cyclical. cyclical. It goes round and round and round again. And it's a series of parallel, interconnected, and yet ever-progressing sections. Those are a lot of words, but as we continue in Revelation, we're going to come back upon things again and again, and what's going to happen is we'll have a series of seven seals, and then seven horns, and then seven bulls, and what's happening with each one of these new cycles is that we're getting closer and closer to that reality in heaven of God at the center of of beautiful chaos, we're getting closer and closer to that idea of a heavenly reality coming down to earth.
2: There is something in that too, right, with Revelation, where as it's painting and showing people and revealing the super reality, there's a we're at the beginning of this cycle, and it's going to get worse before it gets better and we get to the end.
1: Right. Yeah, we're moving in the right direction, yeah. but it is still chaotic, and through each cycle you see more and more chaos. But one thing that you'll notice... Um, up in heaven is that if God is at the center, there is no room for evil. There's no place for it. And so right in the very middle of Revelation chapter 12, we hear that a war has broken out in heaven. And in this war, Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, which is a stand-in for Satan. And as this battle goes, we find that The dragon is defeated. There's no longer a place for the dragon in heaven. But the dragon will be thrown down to earth. So, we've got a heavenly reality in which the dragon's defeated, right? Um, And so, they're perfectly capable of saying, then I heard a loud voice in heaven proclaiming, now have come the salvation, the power, and the kingdom of our God, and the authority of his Messiah. It's done, For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down. And who did it? Who defeated this accuser? Well, it was Michael and the archangels. Archangels. Except that it was also the blood of the Lamb and the testimony of the believers. And so you see this really interesting image in Revelation of, we've got to defeat evil. And you and I are a part of it. It's not only Michael and the angels. It's all of us relying on the blood of the Lamb and the power of our testimony to one another. Let's go one more. All right, so in heaven you can rejoice and all those who dwell in them, but woe to the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you with great wrath because he knows that his time is short. And so when Danielle put up that slide with all of the chaotic things that are going on, banning TikTok in Montana, the chaos that is our world right now, that's terrible. I feel so bad. I was born in Montana, and I feel bad for my Montanans. I'm like, what are you going to do at 1130 at night while you're laying in bed, please? But the chaos, the dragon has been thrown down. And here on Earth, the dragon still runs the show. That is why we've got all of those chaotic things that Danielle put up on the screen. That's what's going on down here. But my friends, there's hope. In the midst of all this chaos, we know that the dragon's time is short because he's already been defeated up in heaven. But our current reality, the one that we're now living in, we see that the dragon is still at work, but not for long as revelation continues you go through your cycles over and over again and in one of these cycles one of the things that happens is that Babylon which is just a stand-in for every great empire we talked about Nineveh last night being a great empire you can think of other things the British Empire the American Empire all of these empires that are out there for how did you put it They're not willing to curb their appetites. They're there to take and to take and to take. But as we go through these cycles, we're going to meet Babylon. She's actually this woman seated on top of the dragon. And again, she's a stand in for every evil empire. And we hear in chapter 18, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Can you feel it? We're getting closer, but it's so gradual. And so, here we see the end of empire and oppressive commerce. And then, oh, this part's so weird. I toyed with not even putting this in here. You know, so then there's this thing where the angels grab hold of the bad dragon that's running around on earth, and they throw it into a pit for a thousand years.
2: Don't get distracted
1: by the thousand years. Don't get distracted by it. All that that it's there to tell you is that we're real close now remember these cycles are gradual we're getting so close but they're going to let the dragon out again
2: can we real quick because you say that we're real close but a thousand years doesn't sound real close so how is our cycle getting closer if we started in heaven and the dragon on earth how is a thousand years closer
1: well at least the dragon's in the abyss for a thousand years. But that does feel long, right? All of this is very chaotic. So I would say the vision of, the whole vision of Revelation is God overcoming evil, right? And bringing that heavenly reality down to earth. But man, it takes a while. And I feel like that's where we all are right now. We're like, what are you doing? All we see is chaos all the time. Um, And so bringing that heavenly reality down is a part of the work that we do. But man, it can... It can feel like long suffering. It's taking a while. But it finally does happen, people. By the time we get to chapter 19, 20, 20, we have the devil thrown into the lake of fire along with death and hell. So not only is the devil defeated, but also death and hell and these horrible things that have been reigning here on earth. His time was short.
2: The very next chapter, in fact, right after the devil and death are defeated, we jump to like the final conclusion. Right? So in chapters 21 and 22, we get all of the other pictures. Um, a friend of mine calls the Bible a picture book. And if you don't understand the pictures, you're not quite getting what the Bible is saying. And that happens too here. I mean, not only because it's apocalyptic literature with lots of weird and bizarre images, but because we need to understand the pictures that are and wh- and how the pictures are all layering on top of each other. But if Deuteronomy was in the business of trying to find Eden, and if the prophets were trying to teach God's people how to build God's kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven, we finally catch a glimpse of what that Eden is. and I really like this in terms of, um, like, we've really, really found Eden. If you start to listen and, um, like, have your ears turned towards that Genesis 1 and 2 imagery. So there's a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and first earth passed away. There's no longer any sea. In other words, there's no longer any tohu vabohu. There's no longer any chaos. There's no longer any of that tumultuous, undefinable, uncontrollable, watery mess that that has disrupted so much of our experience of life. And so there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem come down. Now again, just remembering that the book of Revelation is speaking to these big urban centers within the Roman Empire. And Christianity as this big urban project that we've been watching through the book of Acts and through the missionary journeys of Paul. Um, And we saw the fall of Babylon which is a city and the stand-in for empires, but now we have the true city, right? This is the real city. This is what we're building towards on earth as it is already in heaven, is this holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. And it's this beautiful procession and parade, almost. And then we skip kind of towards the end of chapter 20. Oh, that's... I didn't change the reference here. Oh yeah, I did. Never mind. Where I love this part too because I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people. This is so beautiful on so many levels because in Genesis 2, Eden is in the shape of a tabernacle. And then in Exodus, we have the building of the actual tabernacle and in deuteronomy we have the tabernacle at the center of society and then we have the temple through the kingdom the israelite kingdoms and then john in his book when he says that jesus is going to be the one to come down and tabernacle or live among the people but now in this new city there is no tabernacle building structure because god is living in the midst of everyone and so then everything becomes the tabernacle so we have resurrected the genesis 2 the garden and the shape of the tabernacle and the presence of god And so then in chapter 22, we have, as we've been looking at this new Jerusalem, this new city and the layout of the city, we have this great, you know, then he showed me a river of the water of life. And then you remember, ah, there was a river that went out of the garden through Eden and split into four. That's in the book of, or chapter two, Genesis chapter two. And then we find the tree of life. And the tree of life that is there straddling the river has leaves and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And so we have this full community again. So everything that Deuteronomy cast vision towards in its search for Eden, we finally have it coming to fruition. And that is this harmony between humans and this land they're in, this new city that they're in. And the fact that they, have this community, communion with God who is directly in their midst. And the healing that comes from that, this is what I think is so beautiful because it reminds me of the Minor Prophets in terms of all the people are there and all the nations and all the relationships between all people are there.
1: It really, it's a beautiful vision of the radical inclusivity of God not only is everyone there at the end, experiencing God in their midst, but this, this is the end goal. And as you were pointing out, this has been the thing from Genesis 1 until the end. God trying to be with us. God just wants to be with us over and over and over again. And not just with you individually, but with all of us in our grand diversity including your, Cindy talked about the shepherds who didn't like the farmers and the farmers who didn't like the shepherds. Wanting to be with all of those people and even, even the colonizers and the violent are not outside of God's grasp if they will just turn. And so I think that this whole vision, this idea that we've had Of being in between heaven and earth because that's where we are but we're in luck because heaven's coming down and heaven keeps coming down I mean that is the incarnation right and so this beautiful idea that we can't we can't escape it it will happen and we will continue to dream and to act as though that is true
2: As Deuteronomy spends a lot of time, and we talked about this last night, in terms of um, who gets to be invited to God's table, and God's table in the center of his people, and Deuteronomy goes out of the way to make sure it's the farmers, the shepherds, those who have plenty, those who don't have anything, and that people curb their own appetite to make way for additional other people to come and sit at God's table. And as we kind of push through the Gospels, we see Jesus doing so much of the same thing. Right in terms of the people that he brought closer to him, that he included. And as he gives us these beautiful words of what we continue to do when we celebrate the Eucharist or communion is, we're making space for everyone to come to the table. right? Because we recognize that as much as I need it, you need it. And we're just going to create space for everyone to come and that already becomes a vision and a glimpse of what revelation is going to tell us is the super reality is the end game is the ultimate hope that is supposed to be motivating the decisions in our lives
0: thank you very much thank you you.